coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. We look at our knowledge of retail as kind of more a means to the end versus this way that you build a massive business. We feel like you build the business by winning the hearts of the retailers. And in the process, you can win the hearts of your of your customers along the way. So what we've been able to do is essentially take that mindset, develop products that we saw a need for in the market that weren't being serviced. You know, we didn't come out and just launch a two slice toaster and a drip coffee maker and, mm-hmm. uh, and a blender. We did things that were really unique, that were either sized differently, designed differently, functioned better. And we had a real story behind the products that we were bringing in into the market. We worked with some inventors. So we were able to, I mean, number one, go into a retailer and in the in the unusual case that we didn't know the buyers who we were sitting across the table from, mm-hmm. we could tell them, we sat in your seat, we understand retail, we understand your pressures. We know that every time your phone rings, every time you get an email, your day gets worse. We're gonna be the opposite. We're going to buck that trend for you. We're going to be your partners in helping you to achieve or exceed your goals. And all of a sudden, it creates this environment where the walls start to come down and the collaboration starts and the buyers start looking to you to solve their problems. At the same time, we're, we're developing these great products for the end consumer. So we're able to pair those products with the right retailers and ultimately access the consumer and we try to we try to make sure that every touch point we have with the consumer is we know is an opportunity to exceed their expectations. So we put more into the packaging, we put more into the instruction manuals, we put more into the design and feel of the product, the recipes that come with it, trying to win that consumer's heart. If in the event that we're lucky enough to get them to take a shot on a brand that they might not have known as a household name. Welcome to the show, I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Evan Dash, who is the CEO of Storebound. So if you've ever had an idea that you thought would be a perfect retail consumer product, today's episode is going to be for you. So Evan has a very, very successful company where they've developed a number of very, very successful consumer products. And they've, they, we get into how he came across these different ideas and how he launched these ideas and how he tested these ideas very, very inexpensively. We actually even touch on some stories that he's realized over the years of how people try to get into retail and they do it wrong and can really end up losing a hell of a lot of money. In some cases, you, know, you could even potentially lose your house. Again, these are big, big money problems. And Evan has navigated those waters very, very successfully. So again, we have a lot of fun. We get into some of my trials and tribulations in retail. We've, we've done some things in retail. So 
Evan shares a lot of the the backgrounds and things that he's learned over the years, not only being in actually in the corporate environment at retail, but then also creating his own company that then sells back into retail itself. So a lot of great, great nuggets in today's episode. I hope you enjoy Evan Dash. My dinner table, I think, was the, the perfect American family dinner table. We had a, a small family, and it was my mom, my dad, my brother, and always our big yellow lab was there with us. And oh, very cool. we had just really nice conversation. I was blessed to just grow up in a, in a great family, and I probably acted like an idiot a lot, but we just, we, we just had a we had great, great family time. Love it. Love it. What was the lab's name? Sam. Sam. Good old Sam. Love it. Yeah, we, we had a lab growing up too. Ours was uh, ours was misty. So know, know all about that. But uh, yeah, so did you have any entrepreneurial tendencies or anything that you did early on in life? Or you know, when, did, when did that bug finally hit you? I mean, I, I always had a need to be very busy. And I always had lemonade stand, then I would shovel snow, I would do gardening, and I would do lawns. So I always tied my need to be busy with the opportunity to make a little extra cash. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you went to school, I take it, you went to college and then, you know, what, what happened after college? Did you start a, a company shortly thereafter or was it, did it not come for a little while after that? Well, I, I had a, a rough college experience. I had a rough academic upbringing and always had this need to be busy, but it was only with the things that I was interested in. I so yep, um, the same way. didn't, didn't really pay attention in school and uh, wasn't hard to get through, you know, up through high school, but I actually failed out of college mm -hmm. and managed to do that multiple times and eventually strung enough credits together to get a diploma. But concurrently with going to school part-time, worked for a fire department. And um, always had a fascina fascination with business and thought about businesses that could be started around fire service and different ways to run that as a business and uh, ultimately made the jump into, into retail. But it's interesting because I always had an entrepreneurial mindset, but never really felt like I had the guts to do it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And particularly as time went on and I had a pretty standard corporate job, made this jump into the corporate world. and. Once you start to get a paycheck every two weeks, you start to rely on that. Yeah. And the thought of leaving the comfort of a, of a company and that paycheck every two weeks was something that I never could have imagined. And you fast forward a, a little bit of time and all of a sudden there's a house and a mortgage and a child and another child. And this was all well before I, I really heeded that entrepreneurial calling and changed my career. Yeah, yeah. So now was the retail side of things, was that your corporate job? Or was that where your experience in retail came from? Yep. Yeah. So I, I worked for big American retailers like Lord & Taylor, Macy's, Linens & Things back in the day. And um, those were very, very corporate environments. Yeah, yeah. We actually, uh, I have a technology company too, and we actually do, we have a couple of clients that are in the, the point of purchase industry. So we've built a lot of displays for many, many different brands over the years. So know all too many of the uh, the, uh, the trials and tribulations that uh, are involved in retail. So, oh, yeah. so what, what, uh, what made you, did you see a gap in the market or what was the thing that you know, made you lit the fire under your butt to, to get going and finally start your own thing? 
Well, I, I did so well in, in the corporate world and I had worked my way up to senior VP of Macy's and, and I did that over the course of uh, over, a, over a decade, never really believing in the future of department store retailing mm -hmm. in the US. So I had this, this internal battle that was going on for years where I loved the people I worked with. I loved the company. I loved the job, but I didn't feel as though the model was a model where we could really win. And with further consolidation, it, I felt like that put us further and further away from the goal of being a real big winning retailer for, for the future. So that, that's really where my, my desire to get out of that corporate world and go into entrepreneurship. But what really drove it also was finding the gap in the market, which for me was dealing with suppliers in the industry, the people that we were buying from. They made our lives so much more difficult than it needed to be. And they didn't really understand retail from our perspective. They were more interested in trying to keep a level playing field between all the different retailers. They were more interested in taking orders than, than figuring out how to make my product sell through to the end consumer. And I got to work in just about every business in a department store. And I just kept coming back to these gaps with particularly in small kitchen appliances. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I, my wife was a buyer at Bed Bath & Beyond. So Rachel and I decided that we were going to take a shot at it and do something that would be much more consumer friendly and retailer friendly, and that we could take our retail expertise and our Rolodex per se, and go out and start a company that would do something different than what the incumbent brands in the industry were doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and what were some of those differences? I, I guess, explain your company, explain what it ex exactly it is, why, why it's different. So the company is Storebound, and we, we make cool consumer products for your home, mostly around kitchen, kitchen food prep and smart furniture. Mm -hmm. We have a number of different brands, and we work with some, some great personalities. But really, what, what we do that sets ourselves apart is that we are obsessed with the consumer. And... We look at our knowledge of retail as kind of more a means to the end versus this way that you build a massive business. We feel like you build the business by winning the hearts of the retailers. And in the process, you can win the hearts of your, of your customers along the way. So what we've been able to do is essentially take that mindset, develop products that we saw a need for in the market that weren't being serviced. You know, we didn't come out and just launch a two slice toaster and a drip coffee maker and, mm -hmm. uh, and a blender. We did things that were really unique, that were either sized differently, designed differently, functioned better. And we had a real story behind the products that we were bringing in into the market. We worked with some inventors. So we were able to, I mean, number one, go into a retailer and in the, in the unusual case that we didn't know the buyers who we were sitting across the table from, mm -hmm. we could tell them, we sat in your seat. We understand retail. We understand your pressures. We know that every time your phone rings, every time you get an email, your day gets worse. We're going to be the opposite. We're going to buck that trend for you. We're going to be your partners in helping you to achieve or exceed your goals. And all of a sudden, it creates this environment where the walls start to come down and the collaboration starts and the buyers start looking to you to solve their problems. 
at the same time, we're, we're developing these great products for the end consumer. So we're able to pair those products with the right retailers and ultimately access the consumer. And we try to, we try to make sure that every touch point we have with the consumer is, we know is an opportunity to exceed their expectations. So we put more into the packaging. We put more into the instruction manuals. We put more into the design and feel of the product, the recipes that come with it trying to win that consumer's heart if in the event that we're lucky enough to get them to take a shot on a brand that they might not have known as a household name. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. You said that you worked with some inventors and you know you're essentially designing these products. Are you also manufacturing them and handling that entire process as well? We we handle everything from the a blank piece of paper to the brainstorming about the product to the industrial design and the engineering, the manufacturing. I mean, we don't own our own factories. It's mostly mm-hmm. contract manufactured, but it's all manufactured under our oversight to our specifications. We handle the global logistics, getting it from the factories into our warehouses in, in the U.S. We do the sales process. We do all the finance process. We do all of our own marketing. We try to do everything in-house that that really creates the impression with the consumer. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's impressive. You also mentioned before that you basically identified some gaps in the market, you know, th- products or, or things that were not being really served in the various different retailers. Was there any kind of a framework or any type of a a path that you took to identify those products, or was it just sort of knowledge that you knew that these were, you know, areas that were always being asked about or questioned? Do you have this, or do you have something that does that? Where, where, where did yeah. that, where did that inspiration come from? That, that's a great question, and I'm actually I've been working on a book talking about the lessons learned from my corporate career. Is really that I got the most incredible business education during my time working for another company in a, in a related business where I didn't have the risk and I could make all the mistakes that I could possibly make and it didn't cost me anything. It didn't cost me anything personally. And I could learn enough about, the, about retail and the industry and the product category I was going into and the consumer that we were servicing. So by the time that I got out and I was doing this for me with risking my, my own family capital for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had made the mistakes and the, I didn't have this formal process that I went through. I had an education that allowed me to see things clearly. So it was obvious that nobody in the industry was really gearing themselves toward healthy. And you had this wellness economy that was building up and it's a $4 trillion product economy. And nobody in the food prep space was really addressing healthy. Nobody in the food prep space was really addressing the younger consumer and that millennial consumer and now the Gen Z consumer that are coming up. I mean, these people love cooking. They love being in the kitchen. They have more of an awareness of what they put into their bodies than I probably still have today Today, at this point. You know, I see that through the, the eyes of my kids who are, who are college age also. So it was really that underlying, that underlying education that I got and entrepreneurship can be such a high risk proposition that I can't imagine. I don't know how these kids graduate college today and go out and start a company and how they have that kind of courage to to do it and take that kind of risk, not having had 
the years of education, making those real practical mistakes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I love the fact that I was able to get this incredible education on somebody else's dime, essentially, I get paid to get a, a business school education and then go out and really put it to use. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's amazing. So, with with doing all of the engineering things and and you know all the industrial design behind the products and all of that, what what is what would you say in your opinion is the most challenging step when you're bringing a new product to market? What, what, okay. I, mean, I, I know that it's just like I know that it's just. There, there's there's landmines all over the place, but what would you say are some of the, the biggest headache par, uh, parts when you're- Everything, you're every, every single step along the way, every little stepping stone presents a challenge. And the minute that you think that it doesn't, or you start to get overconfident in something, you, you wind up getting bitten. So we really look at the process as a difficult process that is just riddled with, with landmines. And no matter how many times you go through the process, something else happens that hasn't happened to you before. And it typically happens in an area that you, you've fully vetted out, that you've gained an expertise in, and then all of a sudden something changes or there's something new, new to look out for. So, Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. I'd say that the minute that we think that certain elements are harder than others, that that always presents a trap. So, you know, I'll, I'll really answer it by saying every step along the way is, is difficult. And if any step goes wrong, the project fails. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So have you have you had that unfortunate thing happen where, you know, a project, you, ju you just had to scrap it. It was, you know, just not going well. I mean, is that, is that par for the course sort of cost of doing business or have you been lucky enough where everything's been able to be, you know, navigatable so that you've been able to bring everything to market that you've tried? Yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting, interesting way to look at it. I mean, we, we love to subscribe to the philosophy of failing fast. Mm -hmm. We have some wacky ideas for products. I mean, there are some things that that are really out there type of concepts like the smart coffee table that we launched. We launched a table that has, it's a coffee table, but it has LED lighting and Bluetooth speakers and wireless charging and wired charging and USB ports and a refrigerator built into it. And it's the type of thing where you could go to a trade show and show a prototype. And in this big, sexy environment, all these people away from their offices seeing new things, they'll pat you on the back the whole time and tell you how great it is. Yeah. And then by the time that you actually commercialize it, product like that could cost over a million dollars before you actually produce the first unit. Yeah. And if at that point 
you realize that there's not a consumer demand for it, there's, there's a big problem. So a lot of companies have done focus groups and I don't really subscribe to focus groups because I've, I've seen too many times where people get in a room and they just start, the conversation goes in crazy directions and doesn't necessarily reflect reality. So what we've actually done is we've started to use on products that have particularly a, a larger investment where we're not completely sure of, of whether or not there's a consumer market, we've used crowdfunding campaigns. So we've put together a campaign and we've shown the consumer, we're looking to build this, this product. And what that allows us to do is you're dealing with an end consumer who, if they love what you're telling them you're gonna to bring to market, they take out their credit card and they pre-order something, paying for it at that point in time for something that may not materialize for six, eight or, or 12 months down the road. So yeah. that to, to us has, has given us tremendous confidence in some of what we've and some of what we we've brought to market. And we get a lot of credit for these multi-million dollar campaigns that we've run. But honestly, the the more valuable ones, or just as valuable, certainly, are ones that that failed for us. So we had a, a best-selling blender, for example, this amazing two-horsepower blender. It's still one of our best products that we have, makes everything from soup to ice cream and, and everything in between. And about five years ago, a number of our buyers said, IoT is getting really popular. It's on the horizon. We think that you should connect this thing to the internet mm -hmm. and develop recipes and have downloadable programs. And we completely agreed. And we built this amazing campaign and we mocked up what the app would look like for it. And we figured out the feasibility, but we, we spent a few thousand dollars and, yeah, yeah. and we launched this campaign and we had just come off a very successful campaign for another product. And literally when we launched this, we thought it was going to be a runaway success. And in the first week we took, I think four people ordered a blender and three wow. of them worked for us. <laughs> so, I, so that was amazing. And, yeah. and we really make it a point to celebrate those types of things. You know, celebrate when we fail, mm -hmm. celebrate when we kill something. And that's, that can be one of the challenges in working with inventors is that you deal with a population that is so married to their idea mm -hmm. and almost blinded by whether or not there's a, a better way to do it or even a consumer consumer demand for what it is that they're bringing to market. So we've, we've kind of moved away from that piece of the model a lot because it's a, can be a painful road to, to go down. And we, we let the consumer speak. We let the consumer vote and find that that matters more than anything that somebody's going to tell us. Mm -hmm. So you've obviously had quite a few campaigns that you've created, you know, using different crowdfunding platforms. Is there a, I guess, an MVP minimal viable product that you will create to showcase that, you know, obviously you're, you're dealing with physical products. So I'm assuming that you don't have a fully functioning prototype a lot of times, but when you, when you launch these campaigns, if you've only got a few thousand dollars into it, correct? Yeah, I, I, I won't go down the road of launching a campaign without a minimal viable product, okay. something that's strung together because I won't take the chance of, of what's happened to so many people where they put together this incredible campaign and they're not able to commercialize the, the technology or commercialize the product, I will make sure that if we're going to put this out there, that we are 100% certain that this will be feasible for us to make 
and to make it at the price point that we've promised to the to the the backers. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. How how do, how do you put that type of information together too? Is it is it again just working with your contacts and your relationships at the different factories? You know, this is the idea. This is about how much material it's going to you know need to make the, whatever that thing is. Tooling is going to be this much, and you kind of you know, put it all together and, and get a roundabout idea. Is that is that basically? Yeah, I mean, in in a perfect world, we may just go to a hardware store and and buy the right components, the necessary components and string everything together to, to ensure that it, it works. But we'll typically do a, a concept for it. We'll do a, a rough CAD drawing. We'll, we've, we've done some, we've launched hundreds of products into the market. So figuring out the tooling, we're going to be plus or minus 30%. We're in timeline, we're going to be plus or minus 30%. Like with everything we've got kind of this 30% 30% that we know we're going to be within that within that range. So it. it it becomes a science. And when we get into some more uncharted territory, we will go a bit further into the process and really build those functioning prototypes. So we make sure that we have, we have a sense of exactly what we're getting ourselves into. Yeah, yeah. With using these different crowdfunding campaigns, obviously part of that is marketing that campaign and and making sure that you get as many eyes on that campaign as possible. And I think if I remember correctly, I think it was Tim Ferriss put together a, uh, you know, sort of a how to launch, uh, you know, a Kickstarter campaign or something like that. Do you have any things that you've learned over the years that really work well to be able to, you know, get that thing up and running or, or eyeballs to that campaign as quickly as possible? Yeah, it, I mean, for us, we approach it the same way we approach ev- everything in our business, which is without a critical mass of eyeballs, you are nowhere. Mm. And that, that's at every, every stage of the process as we're selling a product, we have to have critical mass of eyeballs. So we look at on products that have been commercialized that we're selling, who are the right retailers for it? How are we getting advertising for it? Are we running our own ad campaigns? Are we going to be in a retailer circular for it? Do we get end cap placement versus buried on a bottom shelf on a, you know, somewhere in, within a department that won't really see the light of day? So we focus tremendously on, on eyeballs. And then for crowdfunding, what we've tried to do, and one of the secrets to our success is that we've launched a number of our most successful campaigns at trade shows. So the trade shows have a heavy presence of marketing people, marketing professionals looking for newest, latest, greatest things. So that's been a a way that's allowed us to get a lot of immediate, a lot of immediate coverage and eyeballs drawn to it. And some of our marketing campaigns that we've had, we've had a very, very high, or in the crowdfunding campaigns, very high percentage of first time crowdfunding backers which brings some value to the platforms that, that we use. And that helps us get more marketing from those platforms too and build that symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. It's, it's always one of the things that I've, I've been fascinated with because you have certain products that seem to do really, really well. Like you had mentioned the, the blender and right away, is it the coolest cooler? Did you? Yeah, yeah that, that's kind of what like you pictured in my head right away was the coolest cooler and them going through that process of bringing that to market, which was a, a great story as well. So getting into retail, I guess that's the other side of this. You mentioned that, you know, you, you obviously have great relationships in the industry. If someone, you know, had a product that they felt very, very confident that retail was the right direction, what types of suggestions do you have for them 
you know, in, in taking those initial steps to be able to get themselves into retail? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's one that is a massive minefield on its own. And if they don't have experience with working with retailers, they need to stop and just find somebody who has an expertise with the retailers that they want to do business with. And that really dawned on me late in my retail career. And it's one of the reasons that I started the company that, that I did. I was walking through a trade show and I was talking to a mom and a daughter who had developed this really cool product. And um, it was amazing that they had made it as far as getting the prototypes done and they were at this trade show. And in talking to them, I was just asking some questions and they told me that the buyer for a major national chain came in and wanted to test 10,000 units. And I knew that company well and their business model. And I asked them, how they were going to pay for what, you know, whether they had investors, they didn't have investors, how were they going to pay to get the inventory? And the mom said that she was taking a second mortgage on her home to pay, to finance the, the inventory. And they were, they talking to them, it, they were acting as though they had a winning lottery ticket, mm -hmm. but they didn't realize that the retailer wouldn't, wasn't going to pay them that they had 60 to 90 day terms but that the retailer would put them on hold to make sure that the product sold. They didn't realize that they were gonna charge them for the advertising and charge them for the freight and then return things that didn't sell or mark things down haphazardly or send back every consumer, consumer return. And it really dawned on me in talking to these two amazingly creative women who just didn't have experience in retail that they were going down a road where mom could soon be living on her daughter's yeah, couch sure. you know, and losing her home. And that was a real possibility. So I really wanted to start the business where we could work with people who were in that type of position and help them bring products to market. And, um, and we, we've morphed into mostly developing things that are, that are homegrown, but we still sell products that we've helped other people commercialize and bring to market. Yeah, I was wondering if that's, that's kind of why I asked that question. I was wondering if there was kind of that 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 connection because completely agree it 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 is uh, difficult to be able to get into to retail and to do it right is uh, even more difficult. So, but um, if you can do it, the the amount of publicity that you can get, the amount of eyeballs that you can get on the product. I mean, everybody still asks us why we're not a direct consumer business and why we're really putting the, the emphasis on retail. And we feel like retail is where, where it's at. Mm -hmm. They have got these massive pipelines and logistics infrastructures and stores with you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people walking through. And we feel like that, that's the best way for us to launch our products versus just going out and selling one at a time to the consumer and figuring out that whole piece of the supply chain. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're obviously dealing with some very very large companies, and actually this was this was something that I thought you know with with most retailers that they were more technical techno, technologically advanced than what they are. You know, in store, I thought that you know there's all of these different systems tracking all kinds of different things, and you know understanding what you're picking up and, and, you know, I understand, obviously those types of technologies are starting to, to get into the market, but I thought they've been there for years and years and years and, you know, learned that that just wasn't the case. How do you guys deal with, with technology? Are you, are you like, you're running the, this company and you're dealing with, you know, these very, very large, you know, corporate companies. What's your relationship with technology? How are you utilizing it, leveraging it, 
to, to be able to advance your own company? So I, I started my career in, in a big retail company that was part of the May department store company. So I was able to benchmark myself to seven other companies every single week. And throughout my career, there's always been great data available and benchmarking and it was multi-billion dollar company. So we had access to this giant data warehouse mm -hmm. that you could slice and dice any way you want it. The company ultimately understood my propensity toward, toward technology and put me in charge of, of reporting for the entire company and rebuilding the reporting systems and the, the suite of reports that was available to the merchants. So I've always been obsessed with, with data and technology. Mm -hmm. It was a very difficult, very difficult transition to go from working for this big company with mounds of data available to starting my own business and having almost no data. Yeah. And what we've been able to figure out is we pull in from a lot of outside data sources. We look at things like the Amazon marketplace and analyze exactly what's selling, what the trends are, pricing, promotions, marketing, because we feel like that's almost the perfect way to look at it because they're offering, they have an endless aisle. They're offering everything to the consumer. So we feel that that's the way that consumer preferences really bubble up for us. So we're able to make a lot of decisions based on the consumer consumer preferences that we see. Then we also have a really good sense of what retailers have used technology extremely well. And you may go into a department store that sells a giant piece of real estate to Tommy Hilfiger or Ralph Lauren, and that tends to not necessarily be done. That's done more as a real estate deal. But on the flip side, you could go into a supermarket where they manage every single product mm -hmm. facing and what height it's at and how much space is, is devoted to it. And you start to see food trends really, really emerge before your eyes and things start to, to catch on. And a lot of those things we take into account in developing food prep products so that we, we're on the, the forefront of where the consumer food trends are going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And where do you think, I guess, where do you think retail is going in general? I mean, we, we've got this, the new technologies like the Amazon Go and, and all of that, that, you know, the, the, the payless, you know, experiences where you just grab, walk in and grab whatever you want and, and leave and it automatically charges you. Do you think that that's more of the direction where it's going to go? Or is it going to be, do you feel it's more like mixed reality where it's going to be sort of this augmented world where you walk into a space or maybe you don't even walk into a space, you just do it all virtually? What, what are your thoughts there? Where do you think, where, where do you feel everything like that is going? Yeah, I think it, it comes down to what the consumer, what the consumer really wants. So the things that are obvious that the consumer wants today is they want convenience. So convenience will be something that's, that's prioritized. I mean, it makes me crazy to go into a store and stand in a long line to have somebody take my money. Mm -hmm. um, that has to improve for retailers, brick and mortar retailers to, to survive and thrive. Experiences and experiential retail, I think will be a much, much bigger push. And predict, particularly coming out of the pandemic, I think people really have this pent up demand to go into stores and experience things and then there's also product-based retailing where brands have done such an amazing job presenting their products to the consumer in a way that the store is part of the experience, like Tesla, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, you, somebody told you 10 years ago that you'd walk into the, the mall and buy a car 
and yeah. pay the sticker price for that <laughs> that car. You said they were said that they were crazy. So I think we'll continue to see a lot of innovation, a lot of technology pushing in, a lot more emphasis on the experiences, and certainly a lot more around convenience. And those retailers that don't uh, really devote themselves to those facets of the business will go the wayside of a lot of the ones that um, had you've seen go go into bankruptcy more in the more recent times. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before you're writing a book. What, uh, what What's the book about? Who's, who's, who are you writing it for? I'm writing it to try to share all the mistakes I've made and the life lessons that I've learned in going from being a corporate executive into, into building an entrepreneurial life. And I feel like every turn along the way, I made mistakes. There were aspects that I didn't understand. And I feel like if I can just put those those learnings down in a chapter format and walk people through my story, I could probably help you know, a small, small army of aspiring entrepreneurs mm-hmm. avoid a lot of the mistakes that I've made along the way. And then look at a, a lot of the, the simple, um, just life lessons that come into business every day that I think people's judgment gets clouded by money or or market factors and that you really have to remain authentic to who you are and be the right type of person. And at the end of the day, we we feel like we've built a a very successful company in a short, short amount of time, focusing on just winning the hearts of the consumer and doing everything right for the consumer and subsequently for our, our retailers, and then also for the team internally. So, I mean, those are our three major stakeholders, our, our team, our retailers, and, and the end consumer. And everything that, that we aspire to do focuses on winning the hearts of those people. I love it. I love it. Yeah, there, you, you said a lot. The reason why I started Pass the Secret Sauce was to be able to help aspiring entrepreneurs. So a lot of, uh, a lot of synergy, a lot of synergistic feelings there. If people want to learn more about you or your, your company, what would be the best way to be able to reach out and, and do that? Sure. They can find me on LinkedIn at Evan Dash, and they can find the company website. Best to look at would be bydash, B-Y-D-A-S-H.com. And they'll see our products and some, some information about the company. And people should feel completely comfortable to reach out, say hello, ask questions, and um, always happy to, uh, to give advice. I love it. Evan, this has been fantastic. You know, I, like I said, I've, I've had quite a few trials and tribulations in real retail myself, so I know how difficult it is. So kudos to you for all the success and navigating that crazy, crazy world. So thanks so much, job. Matt, and keep up the great work. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.